Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. David K. Johnston is a best-selling author, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and founder of DCReport.org. In a career of 50 years and counting, Johnston has exposed corrupt L.A. police officers, including the city's police chief, tracked down murderers, revealed hidden inequities in the tax code, and become a recurring thorn in the side of the 45th president. In 2001, Johnston won a Pulitzer for his probing New York Times stories on tax loopholes. His 2016 book, The Making of Donald Trump, became a national bestseller. Johnston is a frequent contributor to MSNBC, CNN, and other outlets, and founded DCReport.org, a nonprofit news service that doggedly tracks and analyzes the doings of the President and Congress. His latest book, is it's even worse than you think what the Trump administration is doing to America. So David, it's uh, great to welcome you to the Story Talks Back. It's really an honor to have you here. And uh, well, great to be here. So we, I, I generally start the interviews by sort of talking about the role of stories in your growing up and your formative years. Um, do you have any impression about what role stories or storytelling played in your family and whether that was something that have influenced you? Uh, it certainly did. Uh, one of the things I discovered in my 50s or 60s was that my cousins, at least on the New Orleans side of the family, the only cousins I have, they didn't know anything about the family. They'd never asked their parents or grandparents when they were alive things and I was filling them up with the history of the family. Huh. And the only grandparent I knew, uh, my Norwegian grandmother from Minnesota, who had grown up desperately poor, hmm. uh, married the richest guy in town, and then 30 years later got dumped. <laughs> uh, she had wonderful stories. And one of them I have taught to my children and my grandchildren. And that is, uh, she was born in January of 1890. Hmm. And uh, the first Christmas she remembers, so probably 1896, 97, 98, uh, each of the nine children, I think eight were living at that point, uh, in their little unheated cabin in Minnesota in the winter was given a single present for Christmas, an orange. Now, it turns out this is a fairly common gift back then for poor children. And my grandmother said that her siblings all opened their orange up and gobbled it right down. And she held hers and held it in her hand and felt it and put it in the pocket of her apron and kept it there all day and would take it out. The, kids, the other kids would say, can we have a part of it? And she would say no. And then in the afternoon, as the sun was setting, she went outside in the cold, sat down on a bench and watched the sunset and ate it one part, section at a time. After she became divorced in 1940 or 41, she moved to California and bought an orange ranch, which I grew up on until I was eight years old. Oh, my goodness. That's great. And, and my mother was a great teller of stories. The problem was the reliability of the facts. Um, <laughs> she wasn't quite as outrageous as the character in the movie Big Fish, mm. where the man's father makes up fantastic tales. But I had to fact check her stories. And sometimes they were absolutely true. And sometimes they were uh, too fanciful. Um, but yeah, learned a lot about that. And, and essentially, in journalism, what I've learned is a lot of what's wrong with 20th century and late 19th, I'm sorry, 21st century and late 20th century journalism is we got this professionalism bug and a lot of stories read like policy memos. Mm. Um, I occasionally write for British tabloids and uh, one of the things I appreciate about them is, boy, do they know how to tell a story. <laughs> uh, they can take the same, the facts I'll give them in the style I was trained to do over time and 
when they get through with them, it's like, yeah, this, this resonates with your soul. So you consider yourself a storyteller. You're not just a, a person who collects facts and puts them in a certain order. No, very much so. And in fact, uh, one of the, uh, I think a lot of reviewers of my books have essentially said that I've taken this dry statistical data that I work with at base mm-hmm. or court records and turn them into stories. And the trick there is you got to find someone. So for example, in 1986, there was a major change in the Ronald Reagan tax law that for many people over time eventually took away their personal deduction, their personal deduction for their spouse, their exemptions for their children, their deductions for state and local taxes, and um, did other things to them so that they paid extra tax. And I knew about this because it hit me. Uh, I have eight children. Uh, Back then I had uh, seven. Right. And I didn't write about it though until I was been at the New York Times, I think almost four years. And I found a family that allowed me to tell it as a story. Uh, A Presbyterian couple, he's a lawyer, she's a farm housewife in uh, middle of nowhere, Kansas, who have, I think it was 13 or 15 children. And the reason they owed the alternative minimum tax, about $1,000, which when you only make $90,000 and have that many kids is a big deal, was two things. Just the number of children they had put them under this tax uh, because all those deductions were taken away. And secondly, one of their children uh, repeatedly fought cancer throughout his childhood. Mm. And his bills, his medical bills, meant that instead of deducting everything over 7.5% of their income as medical expenses, they can only deduct over 10%. And what made this really delicious is, well, what did Congress do with the money they, they raised by raising for people on the alternative minimum tax, the level seven and a half to 10%? Uh-huh. Well, it was explicit in the law. It was used to finance tax cuts for millionaires and billionaires. So we were literally taxing people for being sick, people trying to save their child's life so that millionaires and billionaires could pay less tax. Uh, and only it, it written as a policy memo, who cares? The way I'm telling it doesn't particularly care. The way we were able to tell it in the New York Times Mm-hmm. Uh, more than 200 members of uh, the House and the Senate denounced this, but it never changed the law. Really? Well, I mean, how, how did you get from being the eight-year-old who lived on the Orange Ranch to, to being a writer? Like, how did you discover that as a profession? It was actually a way out of poverty. Um, my father was 100% disabled veteran. And my mother, an only child, was disowned by her father uh, when my, uh, he divorced my grandmother. Uh, there was a lawsuit in which uh, his mistress's husband sued him in uh, Northwest Minnesota in 19, uh, well, the trial was in March of 1941, just ahead of the war. <laughs> yeah, well, this was, uh, they happened everywhere. Uh, on the other hand, go into a lawyer today and say, I want to sue this person for alienation of affection who's having an affair with my spouse, and the lawyer will laugh at you. <laughs> uh, my grandfather, after my mother testified against him because she ran his office for his company, um, uh, was uh, required to pay $10,000, which is a lot of money in 1941. And so um, after we left the Orange Ranch and my grandmother moved to Northern California, my father, even though he was a disabled veteran, was a chef and he worked until he couldn't and then he died. And I went to work at 10 to help my parents full time at 13. I had seven paper routes in junior high school, four in the morning and three in the afternoon. And I would also mow lawns and, you know, babysit and do whatever I could. And uh, when I was in high school in Santa Cruz, California, I went to Soquel High School. Uh, I won a lot of speech and debate contests. And one day, a little shopper newspaper, one of those things they throw on everybody's porch, uh, we used to get, I don't know if they're still around, uh-huh. um, asked me to write a column about the high school and said they'd pay me and I could do it during class if I signed up for journalism class. And needing money, that was terrific because I was married as a senior in high school and had a kid. Wow. And, or had a kid on the way. 
And um, after my first one or two columns, they asked me to write a feature. I remember I spent an entire day, eight hours, trying to bang out 400 words about a, a Red Cross swimming class because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and then they asked me to go to cover the school board. And I go to my first meeting of the school board. Uh, the superintendent knows who I am. The board members have no idea. And the handout a press release, which is dutifully reported almost word for word the next day in the local Santa Cruz daily newspaper. Um, next year, uh, people whose house is worth the Santa Cruz average of $34,211, this tells you how long ago it was, 54 years ago, uh, will pay $43.02 more in uh, property tax for the schools. And I just looked at that as, you know, not knowing anything, I'm just a high school kid and said, well, that's useless if you own a $25,000 house or a $50,000 house. So I flipped the thing over and by long division uh, said, oh, I got it. And I wrote, and I may have the number wrong here, I'm doing it from memory, but uh, next year, uh, your uh, Santa Cruz Unified School District property taxes will rise by $1.34 for every $1,000 the county says your house is worth. Well, this story is, uh, appears in the, the paper on Wednesday and on Friday or Saturday, I get this call from the publisher who used to own a daily paper and sold it and then got bored. So he started this thing. And he says, you gotta come down here right now. And I thought, oh no, it's the end of this. <laughs> He's gonna fire me. And I walk in and he says, look at this, look at this. We have letters to the editor. We don't get letters to the editor. We're a shopper. We have letters to the editor. And there were people saying, thank you for explaining this in a way that made sense. And I just, the light went off when I went, oh my goodness. So um, that was in uh, the fall of 66. In the summer of 67, I'm 18 years old. I just graduated from Knight High School in the last semester. A reporter from the San Jose Mercury recruited me and said, you know, you should be working at the Mercury. And, and uh, I laughed and thought it was funny. And then he told me, I have an appointment for you with the managing editor. I went over there. Uh, it took an hour until I got to see him. In the meantime, the editors uh, who I would report to made fun of me and laughed and had a great time. You know, you're 18. Oh, come on. <laughs> hey, come over here, Jonesy. What do you do here? I'm a copy boy. Really? And what, what are you in school? Yes, I'm getting a master's degree. Why are you getting a master's degree in journalism? Well, I hope someday to be a reporter here. Okay, go away, Jonesy. <laughs> are you kidding us? Well, nine months later, they hired me. As a reporter, staff writer, um, I was on the front page in a matter of weeks. I solved my first murder 50 years ago today. And I went really? from four minimum wage jobs, two of them at two newspapers and two other jobs, 90 hours a week and being just exhausted with often not even a dime in my pocket for a phone call to making a base salary in today's money of $52,000 with overtime over $60,000. And then I got GI Bill money as a war orphan to go to college that put my income at around $75,000 when I'm 19 years old. So I immediately you know, was out of poverty. I was pretty darn good at this. I had the good fortune to be put in a San Jose Mercury Bureau up near Palo Alto, where I sat next to Pete Carey, who later won the Pulitzer Prize for bringing down the Marcos regime in the Philippines wow. without ever leaving the United States. And Robert Lindsay, who wrote The Falcon and the Snowman and for, gee, I think almost 20 years was the West Coast Bureau Chief of the New York Times and a couple of other really, really terrific journalists who were in this little bureau. And so, uh, and it took me about five years to learn my craft and then I left. Uh, the mercury because I'd outgrown it. It's amazing that your very first story was about explaining something to do with taxes. Yeah, and, yeah, and I wrote and I wrote a later. whole bunch of stories like that because I discovered David that readers responded. I, you know, the county was running was spending nine thousand dollars. I don't know if it was a year or a month, probably a year, renting space it didn't use because it had signed contracts for space it didn't need anymore. And we built a new courthouse in Santa Cruz that was uh, of this then new pre-stressed concrete design that's widely used now, but was uh, pioneering. Uh -huh. And it was supposed to dry and become white like the sands in the town of Scotts Valley. Well, 
it costs not $2 a square foot less, but $2 a square foot more. And it uh, was gray, it still is gray to this day. So my first investigation was a story about the gray elephant and the cost overruns. And I'm, I'm, I'm still delivering newspapers in my car in the morning. And I'm riding along in my car driving at the newspapers listening to the uh, NBC owned station in San Francisco. And this guy, Frank Dill, a morning host comes on and says, we got to read you this story from the thing called the, the county news in Aptos. Hey, to his sidekick, where's Aptos? Never heard. Oh, down in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Anyhow, let me read you this thing. He reads my story on the air. And then he says, now, why don't we have stories like that in the Chronicle or the Examiner? Why do we have to go to Aptos to read something like this? And I was like, wow. Uh, and I suddenly realized that, you know, all, I, because I wasn't trained to be a journalist and I just wrote what I thought readers would be interested about, that I could uh, make a nice living. And uh, so I gave up my original career dream, which was to be an LAPD homicide detective. And uh, although I did go on to solve three murders in my career, including on this date, well, I actually solved it two days before this, but a year after the uh, Charlie Manson Helder Skelter murders in LA, actress Sharon Tate and others, we had a uh, horrific murder in Santa Cruz where a, uh, a very rich eye doctor who had done my mother's cataract surgery and his wife and their two sons and the uh, uh, secretary were bound, uh, shot, thrown in the swimming pool and their mansion set a fire. And I immediately figured I knew who it was. And um, it took me um, a day to get his name and another day to find out where he was. And then I wanted to go there and confront him. And my editor, wise man said, absolutely not. It's dark. The guy just killed five people. You don't want to be number six. Go in the morning. So I went in the morning with a photographer. We arrived just as the sheriff's deputies were putting handcuffs on him. And, and, and we know now from their testimony that I solved the crime before they'd solved it. Uh, they were busy searching for three suspects when it was one person who did it. And uh, the evening San Jose News rewrite man then wrote this fanciful account of a gun battle ruining my scoop. Yeah, they had big banner headline. Afternoon papers used to run big two-deck banner headlines, you know, polar bear eats Alaskan child sort of thing. <laughs> and it was, you know, Santa Cruz killer captured in gun battle or something like that. And it just, I wanted to just fall through the floor. He didn't stay much longer, but he had a reputation for embellishing and he went on elsewhere where he continued to get in trouble. It's quite an embellishment. <clears throat> yeah, just a little. So, I mean, from this, you know, this lifetime of telling stories and, and putting together stories, I mean, do you have a formula or do you have a clear idea of what makes a good story? You must. Well, First of all, unless you're doing hard news, you know, Boeing 747 with 500 people crashed into City Hall last night, um, the, a lead should intrigue more than inform. Hmm. You want to you wanna think about fishing. What you want to do is get the fish to bite, but the reason there's a barb on there is you gotta, you got to make the, uh, the hook stick. So uh, intrigue more than inform. Feel free to have fun. When Donald Trump's Taj Mahal Casino opened, the lead I wrote uh, was Atlantic City. What hath God wrought? G-A-U-D. Um, I once did a front page piece in the Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer about Trump and why he wasn't in, a, in La Las Vegas where he kept saying he was gonna buy a casino. And the first seven or nine lines were just word for word lifted from Godot. And it was interesting how many people did or didn't get it. Um, uh, another way to, uh, I wrote a piece about that was ruined by a, a copy desk intern who didn't pick up the phone and call me. Um, I had stored up for a long time an idea for a lead out of Atlantic City about the fact that everything you wanna do, you can do in a casino. So there's no reason to go to a restaurant outdoors or anywhere else. And there's a word, a gamble, which means to stroll along. So the lead I wrote was Atlantic City. Uh, the biggest economic problem in this, um, uh, in this casino resort town is that you can gamble, but you can't gamble. 
it appeared on the front page of the paper as you can't gamble or gamble. And oh, I called yes. the intern who said, well, I didn't know that word. I said, you have a dictionary? I mean, it was a very stiff conversation as you can imagine. Oh. And she said, well, it didn't occur to me to look at it. And I said, you know, that is a mistake you are never to make in the rest of your life. She went on to become a very good copy editor. Uh, in fact, worked at the New York Times. But oh, and this by, by not calling. Um, now at the New York Times, uh, there's an old saying that uh, all stories will be drained of blood uh, or life, depending on who's telling the story. And um, I used to joke that it, in the business section where I worked that stories had to be written, rewritten to be memos uh, instead of stories. And that copy editors were paid by the preposition added. You, for example, were not allowed in the New York Times, or at least when I worked there, to say Detective Sergeant John Smith. It would be Sergeant John Smith of the Detective Bureau because it's a false title. There is no title called Detective Sergeant. Um, and they were fastidious about things like false titles. But essentially, you know, the, the hardest thing for writers to do, especially with anything of length, is structure. That's mm -hmm. primarily, as I understand it, what the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism teaches, is structure. And it's uh, uh, creating an arc when you can, uh, trying to bring the beginning uh, and the end together. Um, and... Uh, there's a guy named Roy Peter Clark, who'd be great for your show at the Pointer Institute. And he has what he calls the golden coin theory of which I'm much enamored. Imagine, he says, you're walking along in the forest and you see a coin, a gold coin. You bend down, you pick it up, you go, wow, that's kind of curious. And you walk along and all of a sudden you find another coin. Well, you're gonna keep walking along for a long time looking for those golden <laughs> coins. And you've got to space them and pace them to keep people reading. And at the Los Angeles Times, where I first met you when I was uh, teaching at the University of Spoiled Children, I'm sorry, the University of Southern California Journalism School, um, they were very big on storytelling and writing. And they had much more freedom that they gave you, particularly if you wrote something called the non-dupe column. It was the column one on the front page, the uh, not the main news story, which is on one side, but the one on uh, the first column as you look left to right. And non-dupe meant non-duplicated, the story nobody else had. And enormous freedom to write and describe and be literary. They, for a few years, uh, my friend Bob Sipchin, who's my investigative partner at the end, uh, edited an outdoor section that was properly described as the most literary journalism in America in decades. Hmm. And even if you didn't care about hiking or fishing or any of those things, it was just beautiful to read. And instead, you know, newspapers do a lot of off-putting stuff. The other thing is trying to um, resonate to the readers at, at DC Report, which is the nonprofit news service I co-founded and I'm editor-in-chief of, uh, we always refer to our government, our constitution, our lawmakers, because we own our government. Uh, the president of the United States is our subordinate. He's not our boss. And it is the convention in American journalism and magazines and books to say the government, right. which suggests the government is a power unto itself and it's off-putting. So everywhere I can, I, I sell our government, we own it, act like owners, don't act like renters. That kind of raises a question I was going to bring up later, which is the idea of objectivity, which is something that you know has been talked about in terms of journalism since I first walked into your class. Right, well, uh, objectivity is a very interesting issue that I think is widely misunderstood, just like on the record, off the record is widely misunderstood. Um, as a reporter, not if you're what I do now, I write opinion as well as reporting. If you're a straight reporter, you're not supposed to have any opinion about what you're doing. And in fact, I've written stories about people I personally thought were disgusting that were beneficial to their careers and stories that ruined the careers of people I thought were really well motivated, but their conduct was their conduct. Mm -hmm. And in those stories, what you wanna do is make sure that everybody you write about 
gets their fair share, their fair say. That essentially, uh, the phrase I use is they got their oar in the water the way they wanted it. Hmm. And if you've accomplished that, then you know, you've met this idea of objectivity. On the other hand, what is news? That is the one bias journalists are allowed. And uh, David Shaw, the late media writer for the LA Times, the pioneer in covering the news media as a story, once did a year-long analysis of the front pages of the five big papers, the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. And he showed that once you removed purely local stories and whatever the president of the United States did that day, and any breaking news story everyone covered, like a big airplane crash. The rest, there was only about a 30% overlap among the papers. They had totally different ideas. What's news to the New York Times is not what's news to um, the Times of London, uh, the uh, Times of India, uh, or even the Washington Post. And so you, that was a competitive market with a lot broader thinking. And the reason people, by the way, thought everybody was the same was the nightly newscasts were incredibly similar in their judgments about what's the first story, the second story, the third story. But newspapers are much more diverse. And um, his stories about this, uh, uh, David and I didn't like each other, but we would go to lunch because we had really deep respect for one another, uh, prompted me to do a lot of thinking about this idea. And, and I finally, I concluded that your job is to make sure that the reader, since I'm in print, understands what the issues are and understands everybody's argument that's relevant to it uh, in a way that they can't complain wasn't uh, reasonable and fair. And I say can't complain because there are people who will complain about everything. doesn't matter what, what you say. Uh, right. They want to poison the well and uh, make the journalist look bad unless they write hagiography. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, that's what Donald Trump always did. He, he sought out people who would listen to his nonsense and print it as fact, whereas uh, I was one of the few people who would check everything out and then say, that's just nonsense. Um, so I, now in, in opinion journalism, uh, we mix that at DC Report. We only report hard facts. We only use named sources and cite documents. But once we know we have the facts, we tell readers, you know, we have a point of view and we're often snarky. And we think as long as readers know that, they're not stupid, um, it's perfectly okay to do that. And I just, I detest David, I can't stand this on the one hand, on the other hand, nonsense. Mm -hmm. Because on many, many issues, there are people who will gin up something just to create a phony equivalency that right. doesn't exist. Right. And I use as my model for that, the conservatives who uh, during the late years of the Cold War, if somebody wrote something that was uh, you know, nice in any way about the Kremlin, not that they were total monsters, but maybe they invented something or they figured out a solution to a math problem. Uh, and journalists who wrote about that would be attacked for honest journalism. And uh, I think the, the answer to that is uh, very simply that um, make sure everybody who's in the story has been told well enough they don't have any grounds to complain. But on the other hand, you don't treat um, evil and angelic behavior as equivalents. And I mean, you yourself have become part of the story at times. Um, yeah. I even remember uh, when I knew you at the times that you were reading the galleys of the executioner's song uh, that Mailer had sent to you because you were mentioned in there. Yeah, about eight pages about me in there. And that book is a very interesting book about new journalism because every detail he wrote about me is wrong. He has me at one point in a taxi cab with somebody. Well, actually I was in a, a, a Hertz Oldsmobile and I was driving. Oh, you know. But none of those things matter. It's the, the truth that he told was fantastic. And if fiction has been described as the essence of truth distilled from the specific facts. And Mailer didn't write anything that wasn't true in that book. He just, he didn't care about, you know, was the house yellow or blue, you know, four bedrooms or three, uh, things that newspaper journalists and good broadcast journalists, you know, would 
intensely pursue those little details. He, he, uh, he took a different approach about it. And I think that it worked very, very well, at least in his hands. One thing that I know that you uh, have exploited or leveraged throughout your career is public records. And I think I read somewhere that you even wrote a, a handbook of how to use public records. What yeah, when, I, when my GI Bill money in the last couple of years, I was uh, working for the Detroit Free Press as an investigative reporter in Lansing, state capital, and going to MSU to get my GI Bill money. And I made a deal with a journalism professor to swap a four unit A for a textbook, which was required for his and some other classes on a guide to Michigan public records. And Something you write. Yeah. And so I wrote it and they gave me my four unit A. And then one day I was in a, a class where a professor said we were going to focus on two big news stories. Uh, she read the uh, Detroit News and the Lansing State Journal. Um, those were my stories in the Detroit Free Press. And every week I would correct her. Uh, with, you know, she never asked why I knew these facts or anything she said I had mastery of. And she also kept making mistakes about what was in the Michigan State Constitution, which I had read. And finally, one day, a couple of weeks before the end of the semester, she said, <clears throat> Mr. Johnston, I'd raised my hand. I think it's become painfully clear that you know this subject better than I do. What are you doing here? And I said, that's a great question. Picked up my knapsack, walked out the door, went to the academic office, told them that story and said, I want my diploma. And uh, one of these little cubicle things in the old days that had uh, frosted louvered sort of glass, except it was not louvered. A uh, young man, I remember had a big pimple, comes back with my record. He says, well, he says, I, I don't think you, you have a, anywhere near being a diploma. And I said, why? He says, well, you've never taken a writing course. And I said, no, and I don't intend to. He said, well, you have to. I said, why? He said, you have to prove you can write. I said, hold on, reach to my backpack, put the book on the table. And I said, will this do? And he said, well, what's that? I said, it's a required textbook here. And he said, you read it? And I said, no, look at the cover. I wrote it. Um, but yeah, I'm a big advocate of documents. Documents, if you can authenticate them, like when I got Donald Trump's 2005 income tax return, I had to authenticate it. And the White House was confirmed it was authentic in a very unethical way, by the way. They gave it to all the White House press uh, room reporters. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, documents don't get up on the witness stand if there's litigation or trouble and flake out. Documents are a record showing somebody thought this was important enough to write it down. And basically everything that we report on has already happened or the things have happened that we know something will flow out of. So there's something written down and there's an enormous public record nobody looks at. So when my friend David Crook and I and Adam Leipzig in Hollywood started DC Report, um, our goal and our mission was, we got a tiny little budget with a handful of freelancers uh, and some people writing for nothing, was we're going to scour the public record. And we have again and again and again beaten the New York Times and the Washington Post and everybody else days, weeks, months, and in one case, more than three years before they got onto stuff we were reporting. In fact, it happened just this week. Uh, we broke a big story about uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett, the uh, probably by the time you air this uh, new member of the Supreme Court who had a sin of omission on her uh, Senate form. And we ran it down. It's not an insignificant sin of omission. And we've since found others, um, but she'll be on the court. So it's kind of moot at this point, unless they want to uh, later try to impeach her. Um, and remove her from office. Um, but there's a, you, if, if, if it's important enough for you to write about or put on the air, somebody already wrote it down. So what's the and secret to, go ahead. You just have to learn, you know, where are the government documents, who's got them, uh, how to interpret them, find people, you know, uh, Bill Marimo, two-time Pulitzer winner, uh, one time, uh, uh, twice, I guess, executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, executive editor of the Baltimore Sun, and executive editor of NPR. Mm. Uh, when he was sent to City Hall as a young reporter and knew nothing by his own account about government and government finance, that was his beat. He just asked, well, who are the last four or five budget directors? And two of them were alive, and he got them on the phone, and he said, listen, I just, I, I don't know anything about this. I need you to teach me. 
and they sort of gave him lessons, which I've done with many people. And then uh, he would call them when he'd say, I don't understand this or that. And in the, his particular case, these people did not want to be quoted. They were just teaching him how to do things. That's perfectly fine as long as you go get other people to quote and cite in your pieces, which is what Bill did. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, Ralph Nader has a great phrase about regulations and law, especially tax law. He says, it is intentionally written not to be understood by mere mortals. And so when I was doing taxes for 13 years at the New York Times, along with some other things, I viewed my job as uh, being a translator. Um, mm -hmm. If you're Catholic, uh, up until 1965, you went and heard mass in Latin, the language of the high priests. And then the, the Vatican II said, no, we're going to do it in the vernacular, the language of the people in whatever country they're in. Well, that's what I do. I translate the language of the high priests of tax into plain English. And people are desperate for that. They're, they want useful information the same way that I turned your property tax in Santa Cruz into a number that anybody could apply to the value of their house. Mm. as opposed to the press release, which was intentionally written to be truthful, but obscuring and useless. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I guess, um, since we're talking about taxes, it's hard not to discuss one of your, your subjects of many years, um, the current president. Yeah. Just, you know, you've, you've know so much about him and you've written so much about him. What, what is it that strikes you as the most engaging or shocking about his character, which as it continues oh, it, to be to this day. Yeah, Donald Trump has, uh, is a completely immoral man who has no principles, honor, integrity mean nothing to Donald Trump. He grew up in a household where his father was an absolute monster. I mean, a really horrible person and his mother was withdrawn and that he's deeply mentally ill and views everything in terms of him uh, you and I and everybody else were just objects to be used, abused, destroyed, whatever, uh, uh, based on how he grew up. If you'd grown up in that environment, there's a high chance you'd be like that, as the other surviving children are. Um, what, you know, back in 2016, well, 15, when Donald Trump announced he was running, uh, came down the escalator with Melania at Trump Tower. I was uh, near finishing a book proposing an entirely new US tax system for the 21st century. It's simple, fair, virtually cheat proof. And every expert who's looked at it says, it works. You gotta get it passed into law, but if you can get it passed into law, we'd have a fabulous tax system. I dropped that. I dropped everything just to focus on Donald who I'd been covering since 1988 because I realized that he had run in 2012 every politics reporter, those are the reporters paid to cover the horse race, not the policies, treated him seriously. And then he announced one day, as I predicted he would, and so did Lawrence O'Donnell independently on MSNBC, uh, that he was dropping out of the race because he had a new contract for his TV show. That's what he was really running for, was more money from NBC. And of course, all these politics reporters who didn't listen to us had egg on their face. So I knew that they would not seriously cover him. They would treat this as a vanity project, which if you go back and look at the clips, that's what they did. Hmm. I tried to get journalists to write about what I thought were the two most important things about Trump that were in the public record. Uh, one was that he had been tried twice for income tax fraud, and he'd lost both times. Now, this was civil fraud, not criminal. But he could have been prosecuted because his own longtime tax lawyer testified and he was Donald's witness. When shown a tax return by the judge, he said, your honor, that is my signature, but I did not prepare that tax return. Donald had, uh, instead of filing the tax return, the guy had prepared and had what's called a wet signature with his pen. Donald phonied up a new tax return and with a photocopy machine, put the guy's name on it and submitted the photocopy. Uh, and the, the terms of it, which are in my book, The Making of Donald Trump, show how totally corrupt Trump is. Um, the second is that Donald Trump was deeply, deeply entangled with a major international cocaine trafficker. He did unbelievably extraordinary favors for him. And he wrote a letter that anybody who is savvy about how law enforcement works knows 
says, not directly, but in the way it's written to a judge seeking leniency, keep your mouth shut about our relationship, Joe, and I'll take care of you. Well, the mules who drove this guy's cocaine from Florida to Cincinnati, Ohio, got 20 years just for driving it in the car. Uh, what did Joe get? Joe Wexelbaum? He served 18 months. And when he got out, he said, I don't have any money to pay my fines, but I have a job, which is a requirement to get out early. He went back to work for Donald Trump as his uh, helicopter consultant. And he's suddenly living in a multimillion dollar Trump Tower apartment. It's actually two apartments that were joined together. Um, you know, I think it's very reasonable to conclude that there was much more going on there than we know. And I've, I've argued that the weight of the evidence is Donald Trump was in the cocaine business with him. Um, by the way, Donald also got the case that was in Cincinnati transferred somehow to the courtroom in New Jersey where no crime was alleged to have happened of a newly appointed federal judge named Marianne Trump Berry, Donald's sister and frequent passenger in helicopters owned by or piloted by drug trafficker, Joe Wexelbaum. Crazy. Couldn't get anybody to write about it. To this day, it's been mentioned once in the New York Times in passing in the style section. That's the Sunday section that the movie 27 Dresses is about. Uh, uh, marriage announcements, or as my, David Crook, our co-founder, and I referred to it, mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> but I, I'm always struck by how many really dangerous people you've written about and uh, yeah. dealt with. I mean, have you ever felt in direct danger? Only once. Um, and when I had little, I have eight, I have eight grown children and I had as many as six at a time at home. And I always published my home address and phone number in the book and nothing ever happened, never worried about it. Uh, but um, in 1985, um, the LA Times published a story of mine, a story they had refused to run in hard news and ended up in what used to be called the women's section uh, called View or Features about a a really especially vicious black on white murder case where three young men went out one night just for the hell of it to kill the first white guy they could find. And it was just a horrible killing. And a young man was tried for that crime four times, a hung jury, a juror misconduct, hung jury, and then a conviction. And the judge uh, at the last trial who had a reputation as the most pro-prosecution judge in Los Angeles, a former deputy sheriff, threw the case out and literally used the word technicality. And I had set out to write a story about this is an outrage that this guy is being let off the hook. Mm -hmm. And I, I discovered that in fact, he was innocent. And I went to confront the real killer when we found him. I went without anybody knowing where I was going and the guy who'd been in the joint had big guns, you know, from working out in prison, you know, muscles. And that's not exactly me. And when I'm pressing him about this killing, he suddenly says, I got something I want to get in the bedroom. And I have visions of a large gun. And I realized I had really been stupid here. And I followed him into the bedroom, figuring, well, if I'm dead, there's at least going to be one hell of a huge fight that went on. And it turned out he wanted to show me a photograph. In some ways, he was a pussycat, but he was also incredibly vicious and committed many crimes. And yeah, that one time. But you know, I've been roughed up over the years. I used to cover student demonstrations at San Jose Mercury because I was hired at 19. I could walk onto the college and even high school campuses, and everybody thought I was a student. And I've been roughed up by uh, cops, black radicals, Latino radicals, anti-war white radicals, longshoremen, uh, teamsters. Uh, just general, you know, I've, I've lived through six riots. I've had rocks and bottles crashing down around my head where I'm, you know, pulling up against a, a brick planter, hoping my head doesn't get hit. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, I probably have a screw loose that I'm not afraid, but I just not. When after the riots, where I would turn absolutely cold, calculating, self-preserving, a couple hours later, I'd get home and I'd be like this. But, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in a, a riot. That's what happens. You join the herd. You give up who you are. 
And I did the opposite. And there are, I've learned other people who, who've done this as well. And that's the smart response because it will protect you. I wonder, you know, I know that um, you covered black politics early in your career. Um, and, you know, you obviously- yeah, I covered a little town called East Palo Alto, which is was virtually all black and very poor back then. And we sold 115 papers a day. And I'd go to all these meetings where I'm the only white person in the room, or maybe there's two or three others. That, uh, but it was very eye-opening about structural racism and structural poverty. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. I mean, here we are, you know, however many decades later, seemingly having the same discussion, dealing with a lot of the same issues. I mean, how does that make you feel? Well, you know, the Civil War has not ended in this country. It's just being pursued by other means. I was writing about police chokeholds and uh, bad police shootings at the LAPD in 1980, 81, 82, 83. What I didn't have was cell phone video. And I think the most important piece of journalism I've seen in the last year was by a 17-year-old girl who had an eight-year-old cousin at her side, a girl, who comes upon the police officers who have George Floyd in Minneapolis. And if you go on YouTube and watch, she holds that cell phone camera absolutely steady, doesn't jiggle, doesn't um, you know, do as many of those do where the camera goes all over and people say, Martha, come look at this. Um, she is absolutely focused. And it's because of that, that the murder of, and I think it's fair to call it a murder of George Floyd has had such a powerful impact in this country. Um, I, oh, I wish I'd had cell phone video back then uh, because the, the default position of the Metro editor of the Los Angeles Times was that you trust the cops and you don't trust poor people. You don't trust uh, black and brown people, even though as a good liberal, he would never quite say that. Um, and, but you give the benefit of the doubt to the police. After all, why would they lie? Even after I proved that the police chief in LA, Daryl Gates had assigned officers to sleep with women to get information, um, he killed my, uh, the, he got the paper to kill my story that he had undercover officers in Moscow and Havana. And then after he had to leave because of the Rodney King riots, he published his autobiography. And I was traveling when the book came to my house. I called my wife after my plane landed and said, you know, so what's going on? And she says, well, the book came. And so I sat right down and read it. It's pretty nice because she's a CEO of a big charity. And I said, um, well, am I in the index? And she said, there's no index and your name isn't in the book, but Daryl does have a go screw yourself line. And it was, I even had officers undercover in Moscow and Havana. The very story he had used to get the LA Times to shut me down by saying, that's crazy. I should have psychiatric care. Why would the LAPD have officers in Moscow and Havana? And he bragged about it. Um, you know, People who, uh, which is a little point about that, David, the most truthful source I've ever had in my life was a mob hitman named Harry Colladuris. Harry wanted his story told. And I said, I'm gonna check out everything you say and if a single thing isn't true, we're through. And as he would tell me things and we spent hours and hours and hours together, I would go call up police officers, I go to the home of FBI agents, I would pull public records and everything he told me that was verifiable panned out, in, including things that didn't make him look so good. And on the other hand, I've had um, military officers, judges, um, uh, prosecutors, police chiefs, um, clergy, rabbis lie to their face to me. And, and in some cases where I was able to say, really? Well, what about this document you signed? And so who people tell the truth when it's, all of us lie. If you're, if you know, the famous line, if your wife says, uh, do I look fat in this dress? You know, only an idiot says, yes, dear. Um, uh, and, and, and we often tell white lies for good reasons, little things to children that they're not old enough, in our opinion, as their parents to understand. Uh, it's, it's part of life. But there's a difference between that and calculated lying. And there are many people in public life who got where they are by calculated lying. And the champion of that of all time, in my experience, is a con artist named Donald Trump. I mean, he is the greatest con artist in the world. He conned his way all the way to the White House. 
and with, with fantastic lies. Uh, in my biography of him, The Making of Donald Trump, I quote him saying, no one in the history of the world knows more about taxes than Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump was asked under oath once, um, what do you know about accounting? He said, I don't know anything about accounting. You know anything about accounting? I don't understand accounting at all. I'll leave that to the accountants. I am a world recognized expert on taxes. I've lectured on taxes on every continent but Antarctica because there's no place to lecture there. Uh, I am treated by, I don't have a law degree. I have a night high school diploma. I have eight years of college, mostly graduate school, but I only have a night high school diploma. I am treated by the most respected law professors and practitioners of tax law by most of them as their equal, including people who don't like me, and by everybody with deep respect. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is not aware, obviously, that if you don't understand accounting, you can't understand tax. They are totally intertwined. And so uh, I sometimes tell audiences when I lecture this story, and then I say, uh, this would be the equivalent of my telling you, you know, folks, you think of me as an investigative reporter and maybe an expert on taxes, but I actually am the world's greatest expert on airplane design. There is no one in the world who knows more about airplane design than I do. You know, Aleutian, the Russian, Boeing, whose company is still around, uh, the guys at Lockheed, they know nothing compared to me. I am the great expert on airplane design. Uh, by the way, could, could somebody in the audience tell me what a wing is? <laughs> so, I mean, from your perspective, from your vantage point, doing DC reports and all your experience. Report, singular, DC report. DC report, sorry. Um, what do you think is still the story that needs to be told? You know, what, what is out there that still has to be revealed to the public? Well, on the narrow issue of Donald Trump, uh, we need the grand jury in New York to proceed. Once they get the records, they're going to indict him. Uh, they may well indict him, not just on insurance and bank fraud and records fraud, but on, and tax fraud, but on racketeering. New York has a very good racketeering statute. Um, but Donald Trump is not the disease in America. He's the symptom. What we really need to do is recognize that in the modern world, we are not following a path that will allow us to succeed. We have been starving our education system. In schools now for more than 50 years, we have cut back on, and in many cases eliminated, um, art, drama, music. Uh, there are many schools I've discovered to my horror that in English classes no longer have copies of novels to hand out to read, so they show students the movie in the classroom which totally undoes the point of reading a novel, which is to create your own Halden Coalfield in your mind sure. and to understand what uh, the sociologists call the other, capital T, capital O. Um, my students uh, at Syracuse University who come from China particularly, but also Korea and Japan are way ahead of my American students, even the best ones. They have critical thinking skills the American ones don't have. And uh, the Chinese are generally very rigid and uh, um, operate in an environment of fealty to me. I've literally tried to challenge some of them and they can't do it in most cases. I did have two students who could and I asked them in my office one day about this and one of the two young women said, well, um, the party immediately told me something about her has been experimenting with Western style education. And I went to Western style schools, which is why um, I understand not uh, treating you with absolute fealty and respect, but challenging you when you ask me to. And I looked at her and said, oh, I gotta tell you, if the party decides to make that universal in China, the United States has no big future because you're, you're, every one of my students from China is so much better educated we need to uh, be investing in uh, education, in science, especially basic science. Half the economic growth in this country since World War II is from taxpayer investments in basic science. The reason that you have a phone with a GPS in it and can even make cell calls is all based on taxpayer investments, not corporate investments mm -hmm. uh, in the basic science uh, underneath it. And we have been slashing these. 
there are American researchers leaving and going to China or India because we're not funding fundamental research into drugs. We're building uh, new sort of add-on drugs and marginal changes, but not breakthrough. We, I was born in the industrial age. My grandmother was born in the agrarian age in the 1800s. I was born in the industrial age. We are now in the digital age and we are on the cusp of the coming genetic or biological age. It will radically transform the world. Uh, if you and I can come back uh, 100 years from now or 500 years from now, the world will be unbelievably different than it is right now because of these advances. But we're gonna get left behind because we're not investing in the future. Hmm. The, the fundamental policy since Ronald Reagan of one of our political parties, the Republicans has been, the reason we don't have more investment in America is the rich don't have enough. And we just need to get them more money then they'll invest more and then we'll have jobs and we'll make progress. And the way to get them those, uh, uh, that money is to cut their taxes and not enforce the tax law. And to pay for that, they say it's gonna grow the economy, but economic growth has not solved that problem. Their real solution is we are going to take away from children, from the disabled, from elderly, from uh, veterans uh, who are disabled. That is people who can't fight back. And the Democrats have been weak-spined about this. They haven't articulated um, a strong vision of the future. They have been what I often call uh, referring to that awful low-calorie beer, L-I-T-E. Uh, they are Republican light in many cases. I think that's about to change. I think we are seeing with the rise of new young members of Congress like Katie Porter, uh, AOC and what Trump calls AOC plus three and others, uh, a whole new generation of people who are saying this is all screwed up. And um, you don't have to agree with their politics to recognize that our country's falling apart. Uh, we've had highway bridges collapse. Are we putting a lot of money into preventing it? No, we've had, uh, 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 we've had bridges over rivers collapse and kill people. We're not fixing them up. We have dams that ports tell us will break and they will kill people. And we've had some of those break in big storms. We're not fixing those. Um, uh, when I was a boy living on my grandmother's orange ranch, even uh, when I went through high school in, in Santa Cruz and worked for the San Jose Mercury, I had never literally seen a pothole. I have no memory of ever seeing a pothole. And then I got my fellowship to the University of Chicago and of course they were everywhere. Well, think about how many times you've had to pay for the alignment of your car wheels because you hit a pothole. It's a tax, a form of tax. There are lots of people killed in accidents because we don't maintain our roads. I was on the radio with a congressman one day. I don't, didn't even hear, I wasn't able to hear even his name, but um, he was a conservative congressman. This is a conservative radio show in Buffalo, New York. I live in Rochester, about an hour's drive away. And he said, you know, we, we, no, we can't have any more taxes. We, can't, we have to have fewer taxes. And I said, well, congressman, what are you going to do about fixing up our roads? They're falling apart. And, you know, uh, he said, um, well, we can't afford it. And I said, so you just want us to be poorer in the future. You want the orange grower in California and the tomato grower in Arizona and the uh, uh, airplane seat manufacturer in Tucson to be unable to get their products to uh, Buffalo, New York or Boeing's factory up in Renton, Washington. Um, and he said, well, we, we just, we, have, we can't spend any money in that. We don't have any money for that. And it was like, what? Uh, this is a prescription for being poorer. And uh, here's a little telling number. Um, 1973 is 45 years before the most recent income data we have, tax data on incomes. And I picked that year for two reasons. We're on the 45th president and 1973 was the peak year of union membership in America. 37% of private workers were unions and about 80% of workers pay was set by unions because lots of employers would map union pay just to keep the unions up. They didn't want the rook rules. They pay the wages, they didn't want the work rules. Well, the bottom 90% of Americans in 2018, adjusted for inflation, made $1,600 less per year than in 1973. That's 4% less. So basically in 2018, people worked a full year, 52 weeks, but they only got paid for 50 weeks of it. 
the top 1% of the 1%, the oligarch class in America, starts at about $10 million. Their incomes went up by 30 million bucks, from about 5 million to 30 million. Every, for every dollar that each person in the bottom 90% lost in income, lost, negative dollar, took it away from you. People at the top gained over $19,000. This is government policy at work. I wrote a trilogy of books, uh, Perfectly Legal, Free Lunch, The Fine Print, explaining how government does this through policies. In many cases, no one had ever written about, or they'd appeared sometimes in academic journals or uh, other obscure places, but all of which I was able to drag out of the public record and show that literally every day, the United States government has mechanisms that reach into your pocket and without you seeing it, take money out and siphon it away, and they give it to Donald Trump and Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Oracle and General Electric and Walmart. And it's why they're getting so rich and you're not. Yeah. We gotta fix that. And the way you fix that, stop acting like a renter or a squatter. It's our government, we own it, act like a landlord. Got it. Well, thank you so much, David. I can't believe we've been talking an hour. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you, David. But I really thank appreciate you. your time and uh, hope you have a great day. Thank you. And I hope people visit DC Report, singular, dcreport.org, um, where we've got lots of, of investigations we've been running, um, especially the last week. Awesome. All right. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.